This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another great episode for you. We're going to talk today specifically about pets and pet screening and liability and strategy to uh, to deal with pets in your mobile home parks. It's a very common part of the business. So i got an expert with me today. Please help me welcome my guest, Victoria Cowher. Victoria, thanks for coming on. Hey, Ferd. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Well, we obviously got to see each other recently at the Louisville show. We were on the same panel. But for those of our uh, audience that do not know you, maybe give a little bit more about your background and then your company and we'll go from there. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So I grew up in property management. I came into the industry, as many folks have, as an 18-year-old leasing agent. Uh, Stayed in the industry. Absolutely loved it. Uh, And I got into the industry on purpose. I asked for that job and, and have stayed. Uh, got my degree and did the things, got my CPM, uh, managed apartment communities, both conventional and subsidized, managed mobile home communities, a portfolio of seven of those, uh, and also managed HOAs, uh, just to sprinkle in a little extra fund there. So I've enjoyed what I've been doing for the past, uh, that was 35 years. Uh, and while I was doing that, I was also becoming an educator at night. I was teaching the property management licensing course here in South Carolina half of it to be exact. I had an attorney friend who was teaching the other half. Uh, And so over those nine years, teaching periodically at night, occasionally, really determined uh, that that was a good joy zone for me, just helping people have those light bulb moments. So love that. And then uh, realized I could do that here at Pet Screening as the Director of Education and Outreach. And I love what we're doing at Pet Screening. I'm also a sales team member, but it is so simple, just sharing with industry friends Uh, the brilliant services that we provide to help folks with their pets and assistance animal needs, their data, their process, uh, their revenue management, their risk management. It's uh, a joyful role at a wonderful company. Yeah, great. That's good stuff. Yeah, and our parks, we we are very pet friendly and we actually have dog parks we put in them and we've got an insurance provider that allows us to have all breeds. So we're probably less stringent than, than some parks, but I know regularly, like I was at a property this week and the manager had two dogs, you know, one was a big German shepherd. And she said, that's my emotional support animal. And then the next one was a pit bull boxer mix. She said, oh, that one's my, uh, that's my other service animal. Um, So I know that's a big topic for me and for our audiences. What is the difference between emotional support animal and a service animal? Are they only dogs? Can I have a turtle, a rabbit? Um, You know, in my experience, uh, every pit bull is an emotional support animal because so many places don't allow you to have pit bulls. And then there's lots of scams as far as online certificates, et cetera. So maybe enlighten us with the distinctions between the two. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of discussion to flow out of that. Absolutely. I love this question. It's often a place where I start. I facilitate a session called You Bet Your Assets. And I think you and I have taught in tandem before where I did the You Bet Your Assets and then you did the full bevy of fair housing so that the attendees got everything in one. Uh, And this is definitely a point of, of discussion. So In HUD's most recent notice in 2020, the assistance animals notice, HUD gave us some really great language. The overarching topic is assistance animal. Under that topic, we have two types of assistance animals. We have service and we have support. And so service animals, very different than support animals, different definition, different process. 
So service animals, unless you're in California, there's always a footnote to every discussion if you're talking about California. Uh, if you're anywhere other than California, a service animal is, I like to say, three things. A dog trained for a task for the disabled. That's it. Uh, in California, other animals can be uh, service animals other than dogs. Other 49 states, service animals, a dog trained for the task. Uh, for the that's state. formal. That's formal training, like from a place that does is not a certificate. I got on the internet for fifty dollars. It says my pit bulls a uh, is uh, good at helping me walk or something like that. And like if I'm currently not disabled, I'm by rule not allowed to have a service animal. Is that correct? Well, we're getting into a couple of different areas okay. here, all in one. So number one, several states do recognize service animals in training. People who are helping to produce service animals. Uh, so I have a friend in the business, Harry. Harry is in the property management world. He's a wonderful human and his family fosters uh, the puppies that are going to become service animals. So, you know, service animals in training and preparation to be service animals, because that's so difficult and so costly. Uh, several states, as I understand it, are now wanting people, and we do here, pet screening, to receive those as service animals. Uh, so that, that puts a little wrinkle in that ointment. But let's go to the process for a second to answer the other questions. For a service animal, there are two questions and two answers. Is the animal necessary for a person with a disability? And what work or task has the animal been trained to perform? And as you'll hear in that second question, there's not a delineation, differentiation, specificity about who did the training. There's no documentation uh, that we can require as an industry. It's just these two questions, no documents, and the answers to these two questions. And so if the answer is yes, the animal is necessary for a person with a disability, and the animal has been trained to alert me to impending seizures, you've got a great example of a seizure alert dog. Yes, the animal has been trained uh, to address psychological um, events, I'll say, psychological events, to notice uh, my tells for psychological events and to assist me with those events. Uh, that's another good example. That's a psychiatric service uh, dog. Uh, if they say, yes, uh, I find my animal to be very comforting when it sits in my lap, uh, then that is going to be one we here at Pet Screening will migrate over towards the, the support animal side, which is the secondary type of assistance animals. And now how many, how many of each is a can a resident have with the, with the technical designation? Unfortunately, HUD is not going to give us any bright lines like that to work with. Uh, they have given us the term reasonable accommodation request to kind of frame everything that we are doing. Uh, and so that's the difficulty. Uh, but let me back up and get to the definition of a support animal, and then we'll talk about multiple animal requests. So service animal, dog trained for a task for the disabled, support side. Now, because in 49 states, a service animal is only a dog, on the support side, you can find that you have trained animals, but by virtue of the fact they're not a dog, they're over here on the support side. So support animals can include trained and untrained animals. So the trained are gonna be animals much like a service animal, but by definition, because they're not dogs, they're over here. So think about a monkey that's trained for somebody who has mobility and dexterity issues. The monkey can retrieve something and it can open something. So think about then now untrained. What does it mean when the definition says trained or untrained animals? Those untrained animals, those are the three letters we've all been waiting for, ESA, therapeutic emotional support animals. So you've got service, dog trained for tasks for the disabled. You've got support, trained animals other than a dog. 
uh, and those that provide therapeutic emotional benefit. Got it. So I know I'm, I know I'm allowed to ask a resident or an applicant. They say, look, I've got a pit bull. And I say, well, we don't allow pit bulls. They say, well, I have a, my, dog, my pit bulls an ESA. Now, I believe, if I'm wrong, I, I'm allowed to ask for um, proof, you know, a letter from a psychiatrist or a letter from a doctor or a, you know, certificate, certificate from an approved agency. I can't ask, for example, well, why do you have the dog? Do you have, are you suicidal? Are you bipolar? Are you X? Like, no, I can't ask that for specific personal medical question, but I can ask them to provide documentation. If they do not, then I don't have to accept it as an ESA. Is that correct? You're on the right track. Absolutely. So <clears throat> with emotional support animals under the, excuse me, for <clears throat> with emotional support animals under the support animal heading, we are answering the same questions essentially, but this is where documentation can be required. We do require that in the processing of these requests for our clients here at Pet Screening. Uh, and you are looking at that documentation for what it should cover and include, right? So it's not just documentation. They hand it to you, you pop it in a file and, and you know, walk off in the other direction, which unfortunately, I think there's a lot of folks in property management so concerned about what to do, how to do, that that has kind of become the pattern. If you get anything in your hand, it goes in the file and that's the end of the conversation. Right. And then the other thing is, you know, can I charge pet rent or a pet fee for either an ESA or a service animal, service dog? So the answer to that, as you know, for it is a resounding no for your listeners. That is an absolute no. And I like to offer a very bright line when I'm answering these questions in sessions and on panels. I would love it if your listeners to keep themselves, um, you know, in a place that's safe, number one. Number two, to help them have just a really graceful understanding and response to these requests in the future. Please think of these assistance animals when you're asking yourself questions about what you can and can't do, should or shouldn't do. Please substitute the word walker or wheelchair when you're asking yourself a question in the future. Okay, so this is a service or a support animal. Uh, can I tell them they can't take their service or support animal into the fitness center or into the playground? Would you say, I am going to tell them not to take their walker or wheelchair into the fitness center or playground? And so I think that that's a bright line uh, and a real clear way for your listeners to kind of think through their questions after the podcast in the future as they're on property and, and doing their work. Now, like in my, in my parks, for example, I have a rule that you're, if you have a pet, it has to be inside the house or on a leash with an adult hand on the other end or in the approved dog park. And most of our parks have a dog park, but not all of them. Um, Love that. But, but, but your dog cannot be running around. Correct. Um, your dog cannot even be tied up to your mailbox um, or your 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 deck. Um, is that a is that a permissible restriction? Because you know, I wouldn't tell somebody you can't take your wheelchair around the park. But if they're but if un, unattended, I think I would like don't just push your wheelchair down the street and ignore and leave it. But if you're with it and the adult that needs it, then of course you have your wheelchair. And that's like of course you can have your dog. But what I don't want is, and I've had it happen where you know. There's a large dog on the prowl barking at and growling at people running around the property mm -hmm. that ex that exposes me to, you know, fear and apprehension of harm and possibly, you know, bite, bite damage. And, and then certainly from there, discomfort. From, from their lawsuit. Right. Yeah. Um, so how, how can I properly protect my own interest as a you know landowner while not 
also being in, getting in trouble for in, in you know whether purposely or accidentally you know discriminating against somebody that has a, a dog well uh, i love this question because there's so much here to dig into but first i want to say and and i know you remind your clients of this and, and i'll share this with your listeners anyone can file a hud complaint they can decide that they don't like light blue shirts with white lettering <laughs> which for those not watching this that's what furt is wearing they could say they don't like red. It's a triggering for them. And they can file a complaint uh, and say they're being discriminated against based upon their disability. They have anxiety over blue shirts and red shirts, and I'm wearing a red vest, right? Uh, and as baseless as that sounds, because of HUD protocol, they will investigate that complaint. They are not just able to just dismiss it. So they'll do something with that complaint. So anyone can file a complaint for any reason, and it doesn't have to be valid. Uh, so this, you know, your advice, our advice, our work, your work, this is not about uh, ensuring anybody is going to completely avoid HUD complaints and or HUD lawsuits that could ensue. Uh, it's all about, you know, following HUD regulations, having good policies and practices. If you make a mistake in life, you don't want to have a pattern or practice of ignoring uh, fair housing regulations and legislation, right? So that's what we're talking about. To your question, as I've always understood it in the industry, Companies are allowed to have pet policies and reasonable pet policies can be applied to assistance animals. For instance, if you require the pets who enter your parks to have vaccination information on file with you, uh, our profiles cover that. And, you know, we do uh, ask for vaccination documentation and the king in a vaccination details. Uh, and so that is a reasonable quote. We're going back to reasonable because uh, this is a reasonable accommodation request process we're talking about. Uh, so if that's the underlying, you know, barometer for our actions, our policies, our decisions, it is reasonable to expect that pets in your community and therefore assistance animals in your community have the basic vaccinations, but certainly no less than rabies. Uh, and if you have policies in your community about picking up after pets and about pet supervision, it's reasonable to assume that you can have those same policies for your assistance animal owners. Because again, that's all about the safety of the community, the safety and health and welfare of the community. For those reasons, you pick up pet waste. For those reasons, you have pets controlled uh, and or assistance animals at the end of a leash, as you said so well, attached to an adult's hand, right? So uh, I have always found and have always heard that it's been found that reasonable restrictions for pets can be applied to assistance animals. Great. Well, that, that makes me feel a little more comfortable. And that's, I mean, that, I think that just makes common sense. Like, look, I'm not discriminating against your ESA pit bull. I just don't want your ESA pit bull running down the street, eating the neighbor kid, just like the non-ESA pit bull. Because in our park, it's easy for me to say I'm not discriminating. Like, we allow pit bulls. We require pet insurance, and then we require the rules. In their house, on an adult leash, or uh, at least with an adult hand on the other end, or in the dog park. Like, you can't let them run around. I don't care if it's a little dog. I don't care if it's, you know, a cute dog, growling dog, if it's aggressive behavior, regardless of the type of dog, aggressive behavior, it can't be in the dog park biting other dogs. You know, it's one and done. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I will tell you, because you mentioned bites, <clears throat> I've been on a panel with some national, uh, amazing national folks, you know, uh, one uh, vice president of first vice president of legal for a very large national firm. And it's interesting you mentioned bite one and done because one of the things that they did, and I learned this, I believe from her, I think she was the first one I heard this from, 
and I think others have taken this up after hearing it, uh, was that when a dog had a bite, uh, having that accommodation conversation, that situation conversation with that assistance animal owner uh, led to how can we uh, alleviate the concern here while not going first to asking you to remove your assistance animal. And what they did uh, was negotiate that the assistance animal owner would always have the animal in a muzzle when it was outside of their home on or near the community. And so, you know, jumping first to a one and done uh, in some circumstances might seem excessive to a head office if a complaint was filed. None of these things have a bright line. So it's a matter of doing what you can. If you've got obviously a, a vicious situation with tremendous damage, you know, that's going to lead you down a different path. I understand that. But if you've got snapping and snarling and growling, minor issue. Uh, maybe that uh, is the conversation that's had versus a one and done. Maybe it's a muzzle conversation uh, so that in Ferd, you know this better than I as an attorney, so that if you do end up in a HUD complaint or litigation of some sort, you can show a progressive approach to the situation that respects uh, the disability status of the assistance animal owner and shows that you've got that progression and that desire to mitigate versus just remove at the snap of a finger. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I haven't thought about it. I wrote it down and I'll ask you, um, I won't hold you to it, but I'll ask your opinion. Does it make sense for me to require all dogs or all dogs over 40 pounds, for example, to have a muzzle at all times that's outside the home? I mean, people would not like that, obviously. It seems a yeah. little draconian. Yeah, they um, wouldn't I, like that. Yeah, they wouldn't like that. And I, and I believe that you would find a difficulty there uh, with your assistance animal folks. And so uh, I don't think you'd be able to apply that to assistance animals when you have no direct information that the animal poses a direct threat to your community, which is usually the HUD language of posing a direct threat to your community. Uh, so I, I would not do that because I think you would lose a lot of renters, number one. Number two, I think it would be hard to enforce for your assistance animals. Uh, so you then would have pet parents uh, very peeved at being the folks on property with the muzzles while there are other folks on property without the muzzles. Yeah, well, well, I was thinking along the same vein of being consistent, like yeah, all dogs required to pick up the waste, you know, for, for all dogs, but can I not say all dogs have to have a muzzle irrespective of any known bite incidents? Mm -hmm. and that's, a, that's a tough one. Uh, as a practitioner coming from the industry, if I were talking to a client that I was, uh, you know, consulting with in their property management industry, their property management business, absent my pet screening role, I would say no to that because again, I think it hits too many negatives in too many areas, but gosh, I know we would love to be able to insulate ourselves as much as possible because when these dog bite lawsuits come down, sometimes they are in the millions of dollars. Uh, and there are people around the country that I routinely see across, you know, my social media, my search engines where they're, they've died uh, from a oh, yeah. dog attack. I had a, my first park, I sold it five, six years ago, but our first park, the, um, somebody brought a dog in it may have been a guest dog. They weren't supposed to have this dog under the lease and it got loose. It was a pit bull and it ripped apart a small dog right in front of a group of people. Mm. I mean, luckily it wasn't a two-year-old person. You know, it was a, it was a small dog and they called us and we called the, uh, the owner of the bad dog. And, and they said, we're already taking it to the pound. We're putting it down right now. Oh. Cause we're like, we're yeah, like, yeah, you guys are going to get us all in trouble. Like, you can't have that dog and it obviously hurts somebody like what if so i'd always stuck with me and like 
You know, yeah. What if that had I mean, been that's a why child? the part I put the dog parks in, you know, let the dog go run and play, but mm-hmm. put it in a cage, put it in a big fenced in area where mm-hmm. the kids are not in there. Don't let it just run around. Right. Right. Uh, well, I love your attention to the care of the animals in your communities, the pets and animals in your communities with the bark parks. I think those are wonderful for the, for the community. I think it also creates a bonding opportunity for your residents to bond over their dogs with one another. Uh, Where people's children and pets are loved, they will want to stay longer and where they're cared for, they'll want to stay longer. So those are wise business moves on your part, Ferd. Uh, And I agree with you, they they need to run their energy off. So many of these dogs would be so much better behaved if they actually got all the exercise uh, that they needed, that they really need. Every time I've ever watched Dog Whisperer, and, and ours is a cat household, but I'll watch him if I'm clicking through. It's always coming back to the exercise. The animal has has too much energy and not enough of uh, supervision. Right. So besides the the liabilities issues and the ESA and, and the service dog piece, what other questions do you get asked from your clients or what are the other, you know, big issues that come up concerning pets and, and pets under leases and pets and, and all that stuff? Well, I'll go back to one you mentioned earlier, the multiple animal requests. Uh, and so when we read the FHEO 2020-01 Assistance Animal Notice, HUD's first notice in seven years on this topic, and this topic, by the way, thank you for having this podcast today. This is the number one HUD complaint topic. In my reading, I've read that it's as much as 60% of the HUD complaints. Uh, so in our reading of the most recent HUD notice, uh, we genuinely believe here at Pet Screening, and this was my belief even prior to, to working here, uh, the 2020-01 Assistance Animal Notice Uh, we believe gives you the opportunity as a landlord when you get a multiple animal request to ask that the multiple animal requests specify that each animal has a different unique way of ameliorating that person's symptoms associated with their disability. So let me break that down in more common language. If you get a request for three emotional support dogs, that is just three animals of the same benefit. Uh, So we here at Pet Screening, when we're processing these assistance animal accommodation requests for our clients, uh, if a requester gave that letter to us, our team, our assistance animal team, a reviewer reviewing that document would push back uh, and engage in a written dialogue, so to speak, a written, written exchange, I should say more properly, with the requester, explaining to them that we need additional information about the different and unique benefits of each of the animals, because just three emotional support animals uh, we believe is, is insufficient. Why is it a reasonable accommodation that one animal uh, can't serve you in that one singular purpose? So if you have three animals, they should be for three different purposes or needs, ameliorating three different symptoms associated with your disability. And the documentation, just to take that a step further, the documentation doesn't necessarily have to explain how each animal is ameliorating the symptoms associated with the disability. Uh, if it is you know, written in there, documented in that uh, letter, that the, each animal does have a distinct and different benefit. They're not just all emotional support animals, that each one does benefit the requester uniquely and differently and ameliorates different symptoms associated with their disability. Even that language would be sufficient. It doesn't have to tell you exactly what it is because then you're getting into enough information that you'll be able to discern their disability and that's not where any of this is intended to go. Right, and how much can I push back? I remember I had a, um, a resident say, I need a pit bull, it's an ESA. And I said, I need, I need documentation as to why. And they turned in a letter from a doctor that said, uh, my patient requires 
the this this dog for emotional support to deal with depression and the same a photocopy essentially of the same letter was provided from a different resident ah. and, you know it, it was just this doctor was just handing them out like candy or somebody even or they were know, just sharing them sharing them yeah. and so we called the doctor and there was kind of like uh Oh yeah, yeah, Victoria. I think I remember her. Yeah, like what's the, you know? <laughs> can I ask like, is it Victoria? And it's a you know, black lab, and it's you know this and it, whose name is Fido, and that's the only one to avoid you know basically uh, cheating on this cheating the system by the applicants or residents. Well, you've or is got that some... get me, is that is that going to get too personal? Like I can't yeah. say what is your issue? Are you you know disabled how are you depressed or suicidal how it's like there's a fine line there i feel like yeah yeah you're in you're in dangerous territory asking any of the specifics about their disability but let me tell you what we look for so when our team of assistance animal reviewers is looking at documentation for a support animal they're looking for the five things that people we believe in our read of the 202001 assistance animal notice that people have a right to see that landlords have a right to see in this documentation we believe they have a right to reliable documentation from a healthcare provider or other professional or person in the know who declares in that letter that they are familiar with the individual's needs and conditions, declares them to be disabled, and declares that they have a disability-related need for the assistance animal. That is often referred to as the nexus, the disability-related need. So I'm diabetic and it's an insulin alert dog. That's the nexus. So now let me kind of footnote these things. So these are the five things. So we're looking at the letter for the, for the numbers two through five. At the end, we authenticate the documentation with the healthcare provider who provided it or the professional or other person in the know because the joint statement between DOJ and HUD still exists. It's not just healthcare providers. It's not just doctors, right? Uh, so we all do need to be mindful about that. So we're gonna authenticate the document. We're gonna hit that number one when we believe we've hit all of these other four, two through, two through five. And so we're gonna authenticate. We're just gonna contact that provider to authenticate that provider, produce that document for that requester with that date on it. And that's how we get past just the sharing. But I do wanna footnote numbers four and five, declares them to be disabled, declares there to be a disability related need for the assistance animal. We in property management are often very organized folks and we like having numbers one through five and we like being able to check them all off in the documentation now that I've mentioned documentation. That said, documentation is not the only way to know that someone is disabled. If you have visually confirmed someone is disabled, the document does not have to say that and you should not push back because it's not in there. If they came in with hearing aids in two ears, dark glasses and a walking stick in a wheelchair, walking with a walker, the disability box has already been checked because you know it. So don't reject the letter because it's not documented in the letter if you already visually confirmed it. The other way you can confirm disability is if the individual has disability-related income or benefits. And since we're in property management and we're often dealing with their financial information, we know that. Right. So if they've got disability income or disability benefits, they're on, and this is the HUD terminology, on record or regarded as being disabled with the organization providing them with that disability-related income or benefits. And so for those reasons, you would also not look for that in the documentation. Now, unless somebody comes into your office and they're in a wheelchair and the animal's attached to the wheelchair and you can tell that it is pulling them, unless somebody comes into your office and you can tell they're visually impaired and it's a seeing eye dog and it's very clear, the nexus is usually not clear. So just because somebody comes in, they have disability related social security income 
and you know they say they've got an assistance animal, that's not sufficient. You can ask for the documentation if it's a support animal, uh, and you are looking in that documentation for that healthcare professional or other person uh, in the know uh, to express that they're they're aware of this person's conditions and needs and to declare that there is a disability related need for the assistance animal. And so, you know, with, with language that leads you to say, that's what they're saying to you. It's not going to be word for word. Uh, it, it needs to say that the animal does directly impact their disability, ameliorate some of the symptoms, one or more of the symptoms associated with their disability language, such as that is what you're looking for. How do I, should I look for disability language or the letter, so to speak, to have a time timestamp, you know, for example, or in, a, in a timeline, for example, if I have cholesterol medication, I mainly have a prescription for a year. If I have, you know, uh, I need an antibiotic, mainly a prescription for a week. Do, do these doctors typically give a letter that says, you know, Johnny needs a ESA for 2024? Does it need to be renewed? And, and if so, should I calendar that and ask for it at the time of renewal, or is that going to be deemed to be discriminatory or otherwise inappropriate? If you have a consistent policy where every year, each of your folks who has a reasonable accommodation for the disabled has to renew that reasonable accommodation for the disabled and go back through the process again, and you stick to that for everyone, uh, I think you're in good territory. But remember, there are how many HUD offices around the country so everything you and I are saying today is based upon our read of the 2020, uh, our read of the legislation, you know, and our understanding of, of the HUD notice as well, the, the joint HUD DOJ statement. And so different HUD offices around the country are going to interpret things differently. There are some, I've been told, who want to act like this is not a reasonable accommodation request. They want to act like they hand you a letter and you're done, put it in the file. But this is called a reasonable accommodation request. And we've been told we have a right to reliable documentation. So if you start thinking through this as a reasonable person, how do you know with today's printers and computers that any document without authentication is reliable, for instance, right? So we're assuming the reasonable person standard here and applying it to these you know, questions and answers. But that doesn't mean that you'll come face to face with uh, a reasonable person in a HUD or a HUD con contracted office handling these complaints. So I just want to put that footnote out there for sure. Okay. All right. So, so, so we've covered multi-animal multi applications. What other key issues or topics come up most, most commonly? Well, I'd love to offer towards the end of my sessions what I call my $100,000 bonus, because there's a little component of the original legislation that I'm sure in my 35 years in the business, I forgot over on occasion. And I think most folks today, if I had to put a number to it, probably 95% of the industry or better does not know about this component from the original legislation. So Ferd, picture this, you're in one of your communities uh, and you're walking it with one of your managers and you see uh, a dog go into a home and you, you chat about that with your manager and your manager says, well, that's kind of funny because uh, Mr. Johnson doesn't have a dog. Uh, so I'll need to take care of that when I get back to the office and kind of address that. Now, let's say your manager contacts Mr. Jackson and Mr. Jackson says, that's, no, that's not my dog. I understand you have a policy about visiting animals, but that's my daughter's assistance animal. Now, what does your manager do? Does your manager say reasonable accommodations are for our leaseholders and their occupants of their home? Your daughter's a visitor? No. Uh, does your daughter say, um, 
does your manager say that, uh, you know, we need to stop and press the reasonable accommodation request button here? Uh, what does your manager do? And I think most folks in the business are going to say uh, that reasonable accommodations are what we process for our renters and their household members. This is a guest. It's you know, not my problem. Uh, and that would be the wrong answer. And it was a manufactured housing community that gave the wrong answer. The, tr the true and correct answer here, according to that litigation, uh, that $100,000 uh, settlement, if you will, uh, is that your manager should press the pause button and say, thank you for letting me know of that need. I'll need you and your daughter uh, to work with me on a reasonable accommodation request for your daughter, because what you're conveying to me is that your daughter is disabled and that is her assistance animal. And so we have a process for that. It's a reasonable accommodation request process. According to HUD, that's what it's called. And we need to press the pause button on the lease violation. And we need to engage in that process together. Uh, when can we get together you know, and, and proceed with our process, whatever your process may be. For us, it's very easy. Again, your manager would send a link to Mr. Jackson or a QR code. Uh, he and his daughter can sit together or the daughter can sit there by herself. She could complete that uh, and go through the process with us. Uh, and likely they would work together and it would be beneficial for us if it were under Mr. Jackson's email address um, in our system, but it doesn't have to be. But in essence, they need to complete a reasonable accommodation request process that covers that daughter's dog because the original legislation says that this legislation is meant to protect those who are disabled, disabled renters, and or those who are disabled and associated with your renters. So, so I can't put my lease, for example, you're not allowed to have any guest pets over. And if your guest has a ESA, I guess you better meet that guest at McDonald's instead of have them over for a burger because they're not allowed in the community. Correct. You cannot, that, that would give you a, that would give HUD a golden ticket right, right down the path to pattern and practice. Uh, so that would be very bad. Uh, no, communities can have a policy that says, and, and our uh, profiles include this language. Communities can have policies that no visiting pets are permitted in the community without advance written authorization. No visiting pets or assistance animals without advance authorization. And so when somebody calls and says, you know, uh, my neighbor's got a Rottweiler in there and our community doesn't allow Rottweilers, what's going on here? Uh, that management team should have should address that renter. And if they find out that that is the assistance animal of someone associated with their home, uh, then they should work to give them that authorization. Although it wasn't done in advance. That's the other complaint I get a lot of. These are always done reactive, not proactive. Right. Uh, HUD, does, HUD does not care. They, they'll boldly tell you they do not care when you get the request for a reasonable accommodation. If you're knocking on the door and you know a Rottweiler answers you and you never knew it existed, they do want you to just meet that request head on. But let's, so let's say that I'm that Mr. Jackson's daughter, because she has the Rottweiler, I didn't know about it. They didn't give advance notice. We don't allow Rottweilers and we don't allow guest pets. And she says, well, it's not a pet. It's my ESA. I'd say, I, and if I said, okay, fine, you need to fill out this paper and go through this process. They have to work with your company. You guys are going to charge them a fee. No, if we're she, not. Not for assistance animals. Not for assistance animals. Okay. We do not charge any fee for our no pet profiles. We do not charge any fees for our assistance animal profiles or for the assistance animal reasonable accommodation request process. Okay. Only pet no. parents pay a fee to our to our company. Okay, so the no, that's good at least then for her. She, we have no fee, but if she says, look, I'm only gonna be here for 10 minutes. I'm seeing my dad who's leaving tomorrow for the war. 
So I want to spend all 10 minutes with my dad. I need my service animal and I'm not going to waste one or nine of the next 10 minutes filling out your paperwork. Go away. They have then they have then refused to comply. Can I uh, move them from the premises? Can I uh, fine Mr. Jackson for violating the lease? Or does this, does, does this, you know, bad actor, so to speak, get away with it because they've got this, you know, grenade in their lap of this, you know, me violating their dog rights. So they do always have that grenade. Uh, and it's a matter of how far you're willing to go with that. If you have a policy that's documented and applied across the board, pets and assistance animals, there are to be no visiting pets or assistance animals without advance written authorization. You do have a lease violation situation here. Uh, and I think that you would have to talk with Mr. Jackson, though, because he's your renter and hear him say, I refuse to comply. And then for me, I would document the lease violation. Uh, I would also document in the letter that we do have a process for uh, disabled uh, individuals associated with our renters to go through to gain the authorization and that we would expect that that would take place before the dog would return to the community ever again. Otherwise, there would be another lease violation and you know we would proceed accordingly. So I would hit the make sure that Mr. Jackson tells me he's not complying. So I have him telling me he's not going to comply because he's the leaseholder. He's the one obliged to that document. And then I would document what occurred in the letter. And I would document in the letter that we have a policy and practice to address this reasonably. Uh, I look forward to his cooperation with that in the future in advance of her ever returning with the dog. Otherwise we would be dealing with another lease violation and leave it at that and see what happens. Got it, good stuff. All right, Victoria, well, we covered a lot of a lot of good information there. Anything else, uh, any tips or tricks or any things we missed that you wanna share before we go? Well, so many of your folks are going to be, of course, manufactured housing folks. I loved my time with my manufactured housing communities. And I do wanna say as an industry, I don't know that we're maximizing our revenue opportunities. Uh, we see pretty consistently on the apartment side of rental property management that there are initial uh, pet fees as well as monthly pet fees. Uh, and I've been sharing that discussion and holding that discussion with folks in the manufactured housing side now at, at pet screening. So I do want to encourage folks to consider you have ongoing initial and ongoing costs associated with having pets in your communities. So consider having initial and ongoing pet fees. It'll control your pet population and it will help reimburse you for your costs. General liability, uh, bite coverage, the dog waste stations, the bark parks, the doggy wash stations that people are now installing, uh, yappy hours when you have those in your community, you, you, know, you wanna welcome them, you wanna be pet passionate, not pet friendly. Uh, but you also want to make sure that you have the opportunity to get that return uh, and maximize your investments. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, we, we do that in our parks. We charge pet fees and pet rent, but it seems like we don't hardly make any money on it because everybody says, oh, in that case, I'm going to go get an ESA. Anything well, that's where, that's where we come in. Pet screening yeah. does process the reasonable accommodation requests. And the no pet profile that we have, in addition to the assistance animal profile and process, uh, does help drive out undocumented, unauthorized pets into the light where they can be charged for. Uh, but I do want to give one last little thought. I would love to see the industry discontinue the use of the word pet rent because I'm a pet lover. Are you a pet lover, Ferg? Yeah, I got a dog. <laughs> I'm, I'm not as much, probably not as much as you. I have a golden retriever that's great. But yes. Well, I have kitties because yeah. we love pets, but we're a little on the lazy side about that rainy walks and, and, and August heat walks here in Charleston. But I'm not renting my kitties. You're not renting your golden retriever. 
I'd love to see us get rid of that word pet rent. And this industry in particular responds poorly to it because they say back to me, they're not renting their homes. I own it. Why would I charge them pet rent? So I think we as an industry need to embrace initial and monthly pet fees and realize that you can do that because you're going to have initial and ongoing costs associated with having these pets in your communities. I mean, if they live there for 10 years, that initial pet fee is not going to cover those pet waste stations, maintaining the bark parks, give you the opportunity to add the pet wash station. You need this income. Uh, you know, of course, we all want to maximize our income, but you also need it to cover these costs and to do more and better for these pet and assistance animal owners in the future. So embrace that monthly uh, pet fee as well as that initial pet fee. All right. Sounds good. Where can people find you if they want to reach you after this? Victoria at petscreening.com. And that's just PET screening, Victoria petscreening.com. Would love to hear from them. And preferred, I can't thank you enough for what you do for the industry. You were so great on that panel. It was a pleasure to sit on that risk panel with you. Uh, and thank you for the time here today with you. Likewise. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.